Well, welcome back again, and welcome to everybody again on the lot. Now, today is sort of an interesting day because this marks the 50th message in the Gospel of Luke. So we have done 50 different sermons in this particular Gospel. And it's also where we're going to put the Gospel of Luke on pause for a while. We won't come back to it till 2022. So January, another six, seven months out before we come back to it, we'll do our third installment of The Scandalous God. That's sort of the plan. But today we're going to wrap it up with a story that Heidi was just sharing about that I think is really valuable at many levels. I think it's valuable because it tells us something about the heart of God. I think it's valuable because it teaches us about how we should see the world around us with God's heart, and that hopefully gives us better perspective on how we exercise a very uncomfortable, even scandalous type of grace. So if you have a Bible or you have an app, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're looking at verses 1 through 10, and then it's great. When we come back in 2022, it'll be the prodigal God, prodigal son story beautiful story in the Bible all the way around that we're going to want to look at. But today, we're wrapping it up here with this particular section of the Gospel of Luke. And so, if you would pray with me right now really quick, that would be fantastic. Jesus, um, I love the message that you have in this Gospel, not only because it's beautiful, not only because it's scandalous in many ways, but it's challenging. It is very challenging. And I think the kind of love you are describing in these stories today, the kind of reckless love, as we were just singing about, is apparent. And I, I think sometimes, Jesus, why it's hard for us to exercise your kind of love is we're, we're fearful that it's going to look as though we're somehow condoning or accepting of those who maybe uh, do not have lives or characteristics that we find kind of in line with your values. And yet, that's what you did. And I pray that we will become more comfortable with being uncomfortable with uncomfortable people because that's where your grace really shines. And so I pray that you teach us today what it is you have for us and that we will receive it, welcome it, and then do it. Not just be like, oh, that was good and walk away, but rather we'd say, that was so good and I want to go practice that in the world around me. And so we ask you would help us to do that, Jesus, in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we are in Luke chapter 15 and the theme of this chapter is really no different than the theme of the last handful of chapters. In other words, when we look at this, it's Jesus versus religion once again. And I know for some of you, you're like, really, we're going to do this again? Is it constantly about how religion is broken, religion is flawed, religion is wrong? And the answer is yes. That's not my answer, though. I didn't write the Gospel of Luke. The Holy Spirit put it together. The Holy Spirit put it into Luke's heart to write this particular Gospel. And repeatedly in the Gospel, we keep seeing this kind of conflict between Jesus versus religion. And I believe, like I've said before, it's a teaching tool to say our temptation as followers of Jesus is to sometimes forget the spirit of Jesus, the essence of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, the intention of grace, and instead we can fall victim to becoming a bit religious. And so I think there's this constant narrative about the danger of religion to warn us that we always are at risk of being very religious in the way we conduct our Christian faith. And so I think that's the challenge. And at the core of this, when I really look deeply, it's something we've been kind of navigating throughout this time. It's this definition of holiness. Because religion thinks it's holy. And Jesus is stating he's holy. And yet the, the way they see that word is so radically different that each side is looking at the other saying, and your variation is unholy in comparison to mine. Now we know that in that argument, Jesus will always win. But that's the tension point. 
And their definition of holiness is different both on paper and in practice. See, for religion, holiness is about really being set away from the world. I want to say that again. For religion, holiness is about being set away from the world. It's about being withdrawn from the sinner. It is about being uncommon, because that's literally what the word means, uncommon. But it's being uncommon by being undefiled, by being separated from the notorious, the unlovely, the unwanted, the outsider, the traitor, the deplorable, the degenerates, the blasphemers. You get your list, you get the idea. That's the way religion understood it. That's true holiness, to extricate yourself from all of those things and all of those people. But Jesus, his holiness was a bit different because he said, no, I don't want to be set apart away from the world. I want to be set apart for the world. I want to draw near to the sinner. I want to make an investment, right? I want to be involved with the notorious, the broken, the unlovely, the scandalous, the traitor, the blasphemer. Like that was where he found his space. And so religion said, okay, we want to escape from all of those bad people. And Jesus says, no, I want to press in to all of those bad people. That is the difference between holiness. So for them, holiness was just stay away and judge in the process condemn the condemned but for jesus it was draw near come close make an investment and exercise the spirit of holiness which is being other than the world and other than the world was to then love them love those people in mercy and justness right so that's where he made his investment and that's sort of where we begin to see the story unfold and what's interesting about this is that of the two variations it seems that jesus's approach actually is what brings true transformation to the world instead of simply condemning the world and pointing at the world by pressing into the world and loving the world he actually brings transformation to the world and so if you're taking notes we have an app with notes this morning and if you're taking those notes it's the first thing in your notes It's this awkward reality that true holiness draws unholy people. I want to say that again. True holiness draws unholy people. And I think we find this a little bit unexpected because we typically think, no, when true holiness emerges into a scene, it will repel those who are sinful. But I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Here is Jesus. He is perfect. He is God. He is holy by definition. He is on the scene in the world. He has perfect character, perfect clarity, perfect perspective. He's the only dude in the room that has any space to judge anybody for anything. And yet, weirdly enough, the dude that is perfect purity, incarnate, holiness before the world, when he is there, before the people, here's what it says in verse 1. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So here's the paradox to me. Instead of avoiding the holy man, they often came. They wanted to listen. They wanted to draw near to him. And I'm kind of always curious when I read this to go, why? Why would messy people with broken lives be compelled to come near to Jesus. Because notice what it says. Go back and look at the passage. It does not say people who used to be notorious sinners, people who used to be estranged from God, come and listen now. It says, no, those who are currently in the state of being notorious sinners, those who are currently in the state of ripping off their, their neighbors for taxes, 
those same people in their ugly state can't wait to be near Jesus. That to me is interesting. Because if Jesus is God and God is holy, 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 then somehow holiness draws the notorious. It doesn't necessarily repel them. And then I ask why. And I go, well, because Jesus was different. Jesus was uncommon from his world. And again, I keep wanting to help us understand that that is the definition of holy. Holiness is just the other of what is normative. And so what was normative for those people was rejection. And therefore, Jesus just rolls in with the opposite. And he says, no, now I'm going to make it inclusion. I'm going to bring you into my world. I want you to be a part of my life. I want to do life with you. And it frustrates religion. Because religion loved to condemn them, but he wanted to commune with them. They wanted to reject, and he wanted to recline with. It's just so utterly different. And in this, it appears that he shows these people that everybody else writes off. He looks at them, and he sees dignity, and he sees value, and he sees worth. He sees his image in all people. He sees the potential for what their lives could be if transformed by him. And for whatever reason, he can see past, in a very interesting way, their baggage, their failure, their sin, and their vice. And he sees more deeply to their soul and what he knows in this. And this is so important for us. What he knows is any external pressure to get them to conform still leaves them in their sin. The only thing that can change their life is if their soul is altered and the soul will then change the person. So Jesus targets the soul more than the behavior, more than the character, more than modifying what they do. He just simply presses into them to love them, to teach them, to grow with them, and to do life with them, and they can't wait to be near him. That is an odd reality that holiness draws sinners, the notorious rejects, the despised sellouts, the unwanteds, the unlovelies, the disrespecteds. Now, part of the reason I think this is true of Jesus is it's his mission, right? He says it more than once, and he came to seek and save the lost, which is fantastic, but I think there's a deeper thing in play, too, and that is the fact that Jesus was literally like a safe space for these people because it's the very essence of his character to be that safe space. Now, I know I'm saying safe space, and right now you think about like really thin-skinned college students needing a place to vacate when they hear an idea they don't like. That's not what I mean by a safe space. I mean something more deep. And here's what I mean by this. In Matthew chapter 11, you see something that Jesus does that you do not see anywhere else. You see he does something that we should always stop and take note of this. He describes himself. That's not common for Jesus. Jesus will say, I'm the son of man or whatever else. But you know, when somebody says, tell me about yourself, what are you like? You will begin to give a list of things of kind of, this is who I am. This is what makes me tick. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. You know, whatever it is, you know, you'll have your description. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, if you want to know what I'm like, let me tell you. Let me self-describe myself for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because, let me define myself for you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. Of all the places in the Bible, that we see descriptions of Jesus, only once does he describe himself. And in describing himself, he says, I am lowly and gentle in heart. Right? That, to him, is the best marquee of capturing his character for us. 
And he says, because I am lowly and gentle in heart, from that, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in a world of power and control, in a world of judgment and condemnation, just steps into it and draws with holiness because he is safe space for the broken. He's safe space for the weary. He's safe space for those who have made awful decisions in life. And he's still safe space for all the people that are coming in verse 1 who are still making awful decisions. But he gives them room to ponder, to question, to wrestle with his message. And he doesn't just see them as targets, but he sees them as people, like I said earlier, with his image no matter what. And so he keeps investing. He keeps caring. He keeps spending time with all of them. He loves them in mercy and justness. It's like water in the desert, right, for these people. And that's in contrast to the holiness of religion again that stands against the sinner, that presides in judgment, that criticizes the world and all of its offenses, that thinks holiness is best expressed by the religious in letting the world know how bad it is and wrong it is and broken it is, and so condemning the condemned again. Like, that's what religion would do, but Jesus is altogether different. But we know this is the way religion works because of the second thing in your notes, true holiness, it irritates. It irritates religious people. Right? Jesus is chilling with the sinners. And it says in verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. He's even eating with them. See, I don't think they would care so much that sinful people were listening to Jesus, provided once they get there, he balls them out and lets them know, believe or leave, right? You're in or you out, turn or burn, baby. Like, if he was saying that to all the sinners, I'm sure the Pharisees would be cool. But instead, he's actually identifying with them. Because to have a meal in that culture with sinful people was more than just kind of breaking bread, as though it was just an activity of fueling your body. This was a social declaration, right? That these people are my people. That I am an ally with who they are. I, 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 I actually consider them to be my friends. It's an association. It's a community that I've established with these individuals. For religion, that freaks them out. And again, it shows that difference. Religion says, stand away, stay away, where Jesus says, in holiness, I stand with and stand for because that is grace. See, what Jesus continues to magnify in every activity engages in, he engages in is this idea that, yes, exercising grace is so uncomfortable. Loving people in grace is going to make you feel awkward because then you're like, I don't know, am I loving them too much? Are they going to get the wrong idea that I condone everything they do? Jesus didn't seem to sweat that. He just seemed to believe that, hey, the more they're around me and the more they see the love of God in me and the more they see me living out the truth as a pure person because he's the only pure person that's ever lived, maybe they'll be compelled by that. And they'll be like, man, this guy's got to figure it out. I want to do what this guy's doing. I'm going to live for him. I want to submit my life to him. So Jesus just sort of throws the net out there, lets all the fish kind of hang out in the net, and then just he waits until there's that click, that aha, and they, they repent, they follow, they, they cleave to him. And so he just, that's what he does. Religion struggles with that. It just struggles with that because it feels like, no, I gotta take more of a stand. I gotta let people know how wrong they are. And she's like, well, their own hearts will condemn them so often when they're confronted with the truth. And, and so he just makes the investment. In fact, that really leads to number three in her notes. True holiness eagerly seeks all kinds of people. 
See, not only does true holiness have the sense of caring for people, not only does true holiness draw people, but in that true holiness seeks people as they are drawn. So there's both ends of the spectrum that go on with this, right? And I believe true holiness seeks all kinds of people because at the core of it, true holiness longs to exercise grace. True holiness can't wait to find another reason to display grace in a graceless world. So to make the point, Jesus then goes into story mode. Verse 3, Jesus told him this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness to go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, here's the thing. Spock said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Spock would not like Jesus. Because Jesus says, you know, here's what a true good shepherd does. He literally risks the other 99 sheep. That's what it says in the story. He leaves 99 sheep alone in the wilderness, right? There's a risk there. But he does it for the sake of this one. The one has value to him. The one has worth. And so he will chase down the one. I think that's kind of an interesting concept to me. Because it goes back to Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel had failed in their job. And they weren't shepherding people. They weren't going after people. And so God literally says, he says, I will come, I will shepherd, and I will personally, he says it, I will personally go seek and find the lost of Israel. And so now God shows up, the true shepherd, Jesus, and he is God who seeks to find the lost one. God is relentless in his project, and so he will go, he will look, and he will not quit until they are found. And then what does he do when they are found? He says, when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I love this because when he finds the sheep, he doesn't beat it. He doesn't scold it. He doesn't say, why did you wander away, you stupid sheep? You know? No, look how intimate this is, right? He picks it up. He puts it on his own back. He puts his own energy into it, expresses his own joy in finding it, and then throws a party because he's found this sheep. Now, here's what's odd, right? In throwing the party, he will realistically spend more money on the party than he would have spent on just replacing the sheep, right? Like a smart person would have said, I got 99, the one went wandering off. I don't want to risk losing anymore. That one can just go away. I will go home, cut my losses, buy another sheep, not have a party, and it'll be fine. But the message of the story, it runs deeper than that. See, in this story, every sheep to the shepherd is priceless. There's no sense of, I can just replace it. He's like, no, it's not just simply I want to replace it because, again, they have dignity, they have value, they have worth. And so with that, he will give his time, his energy, his liability, no matter the cost to find the sheep. To reinforce this, he tells the second story. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And then when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me. Because I have found my lost coin. Now, a couple of things of note about the story that is cool. The first is that Luke's been doing something throughout his gospel where he keeps interchanging men and women in the story. So 
heals a woman on the Sabbath, heals a man on the Sabbath, tells about a man who plants seed, tells about a woman who makes dough. And here he tells about a man who seeks a sheep, a woman who seeks a coin. For Luke, he keeps trying to show that part of the holiness and otherness of the kingdom is this equality of value. And so he oscillates between men and women constantly throughout his gospel, kind of making that point. But the other point that's embedded into this story is the one we just saw, right? This woman is relentless to find the coin. And again, it's kind of like, why? You know it's in the house. You've got nine others. It's going to turn up someday, right? It's not going to be far. Houses there were not like the houses we have. They weren't palatial pads. They're small little buildings. She's going to come across the coin, but she's like OCD to find it. She will not stop until she finds it. And then when she finds it, she invites the friends over and says, hey, let's have a party. I found a quarter, right? And you're like, well, why are you so excited about finding one coin? In fact, again, she's inviting them to basically have a party. It's going to cost more than the coin she found. But the story's still the same. The coin is worth it. The one coin is worth it. The one sheep is worth it. And sheep and coins aren't sheep and coins. They're people. They're notorious sinners. They're broken lives. They're messed up psyches and souls. Those are the notorious sinners. Both stories show the deeper story that you have value in God's sight. And then painfully, others, maybe some of the people you don't like in life, have tremendous value in God's sight. I mean, think about those people that maybe bother you or you think it's time for them to get their own or just dessert. Maybe it's the moral relativists or the abortion activists or the heroin addicts. Maybe it's the pride supporters or the white privilege deniers or the woke critical race theorists or the intense gun enthusiasts, the refugees, the undocumented, the terrorists, the extremists, the racists, the nationalists, you name your thing. And they're all sheep and they're all coins. They're all people who have infinite value to God. And here's the thing. If we won't or can't see the value that God sees in them, then we are perhaps the worst sinners in the story. Because we know this story. We know this God. We know the expectation. We know that he's rescued us. We should be the most humbled and therefore the most giving to others because we get grace. We've experienced it. And if we can't do that, if we forget where we've come from, then in essence, we're forgetting the very essence of the gospel and what it's all about. See, what we need to be about is seeing people, seeking people, sitting with people, and sharing life with people because that's to be like Jesus. Where religion is about fighting them, judging them, avoiding them, or just looking down on them, right? This is why we need to be truly holy. In fact, I can't help but think about how this whole thing started off this morning where I'm like, why were sinful people so attracted to the holiness of Jesus? Like, it's a really important question because when I kind of overlay that against our lives today, I go, why isn't the the lost world around us more attracted to the holiness of the church? And is it because we're maybe missing what true holiness is in the name of an artificial holiness? Are we thinking it's more about morality than it is about grace and gospel? I'm not sure, but it seems that, that holiness should attract because it did attract in the person of Jesus. And true holiness sought more than judged or condemned those who needed restoration. And so I think sometimes, at least as I analyzed it in my own life, I'm like, why is this not always the case? Even in my own life, why do I not live out a holiness that draws? And I, I realize that it's probably because I don't recklessly and relentlessly value and tangibly display 
God's grace. I don't always value God's image in all, and I don't always value God's deepest joy, right? I think it's easy to be offended in today's climate. It's easy to judge. It's easy to condemn. It's easy to just look at other people and go, oh, they're the broken ones. That's easy to do. But that's not godlier or holier. Like, Jesus was God and holy, and he had a very different approach when it came to broken, lost lives, right? And they, they were drawn to him. I just think that's so interesting how they were, they were drawn. And I think this was important to Jesus for two reasons. One is he loves to show grace to the lost. I think that's true. But the other is that he has true love for the seeker. And I want to be clear what I mean by this, that Jesus has true love for the seeker. If there's anything I want you to walk away with today, this is the one I want you to walk away with. The seeker is not the lost person. The seeker's God. In the story, the seeker is God. And Jesus so loves God the seeker that he loves the sinner, invests grace into the sinner, in part because he loves the sinner, but more so because he loves the seeker who is God. I want you to keep in mind how both of these stories end. It says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. By the way, that's just kind of a rhetorical device. There are no righteous people, but you get the idea. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So here's the difference, difference between Jesus and religion. We teach in the rabbinical literature that there would be joy in heaven. There will be joy in heaven when the irritating are vanquished, the ungodly are destroyed, when sinners are obliterated. Then there will be joy in heaven. That's rabbinical teaching. And then Jesus rolls in and says, well, actually, there's going to be joy in heaven, not over those things, but over somebody that has changed, transformed, somebody that comes in contact with the love of God, grace of God, the power of God, the transformation of God. There will be an explosion of joy in heaven. And here is the mind bender, right? The cost is going to be great for this. The cost for the sheep is the son. The cost for the coin is the son. The cost for the sinner is the son. But the son will willingly do it because he knows how much joy it'll bring the father. Because look closely at your passage. When it says there will be joy in heaven and joy before the angels, it does not say, and God will be there and all the angels will rejoice. No, it says all the angels will be watching as God is the one who rejoices. There is more joy in the presence of the angels. It's God who's getting his groove on. It's God who's excited. It's God that's pumped up. We see in Zephaniah that God sings with delight over the restoration of the righteous. And so here, God is exploding with joy because those who were lost are found. He loves it, and Jesus loves it. God loves it. And so Jesus does what God wants him to do. Jesus loves his Father so much, he will lean into it full force to bring great joy to his father. And in the same way, we should have the same motivation. I'm so driven to bring joy to God. I want to care about, reach out, seek the lost. Invest into them because that is the stuff of the kingdom. And so right now, maybe some of us are like, I feel more like the lost sheep and lost coin than the one that's out doing God's work to restore a lost sheep or a lost coin. Hey, maybe you're watching even online. You're like, I'm one of those lost ones right now or I feel that way. Well, then that's a moment for you to be like, man, I, I want to come back to the one who seeks me. Because God seeks you. 
And that's a prayer where you say, I've been estranged, I've done my own thing, I've been unfocused, I've walked away, whatever it is, and I want to be restored to you, right? You just say, God, I confess that, and God's like, man, come here. Like in the story we'll see next time we're in Luke, he's the father waiting for you to return. He can't wait. And there's so much joy in him when you come. But then in our lives, we also might have sheep or coins, And if we have those people in our lives that we're trying to reach out to, then we need to do it in the same spirit of Jesus. We need to be those who have that heart of God that scours, that cares, that has a holiness, that draws more than repels, and from that people can be restored and made whole in God again. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that throughout this section of the Gospel of Luke, the last several chapters, since chapter 9, when you're like, hey, this is what it means to follow me, and you'd have you've just driven home this juxtaposition between yourself and religion and therefore showing us what it means to follow. I pray that we follow in such a way that we are ambassadors of your heart and your spirit, not simply your words and your will, that we would show the world what grace feels like as much as what it sounds like and looks like. And that from that, we will trust that it's your grace that transforms. It's true holiness that attracts and it's true holiness that seeks. Help us to be more like you, Jesus, and your good in perfect name. Amen.